Freetopia Urgently optimistic discussions with experts about the technological risks and opportunities shaping our future. Instead of worrying about feeding your family when AI takes away all the jobs, let the abundance created by AI feed us and give us the opportunities for self-actualization. Welcome to Peertopia. This is Nima, co-host of the podcast, and that was the voice of Trent McConaughey. He's, in a way, also a co-founder for the podcast, and the reason I met my co-host Anish. In our first season, we thought we should talk about this dichotomy between can't be evil and don't be evil. And in our wide-ranging conversation with Trent, we'll talk about everything from AI to data commons. And it's going to be an intro for the rest of the season where we'll talk to experts in each of these fields that we touched upon with Trent. I won't bore you with my Finglish accent. I hope you enjoy the podcast and see you in the next episode. Pretopia.fm Hi everyone, we're at uh, Trent's uh, house in lovely Berlin. Uh, you probably hear birds chirping. Um, this this whole podcast kind of started with uh, me, Anish and Trent kind of accidentally ha- having a conversation over beer. And initially, like I would, I would be happy if we just did this podcast, and that would be like it was meant to be just like a podcast with uh, Trent, and then it turned into like a whole thing. Um, so we really love to hear a little bit more about your story and why you are the kind of I, I could probably say impact entrepreneur that you are. Like you're not just doing tech for the sake of tech. Um, like what was the like the driving force for you to uh, try to do what the thing you're doing with uh, Ocean now? So um, uh, thank you. And gr- by the way, it's a great pleasure to be here with you guys talking about this. And I guess uh, when I started up my career, um, I was already hacking and building things, right? Um, hacking on computers and so on. And um, a lot of the things that sort of myself and my teammates um uh, dreamed of, we ended up building and deploying, and over time we realized, wow, you know, this this really can make um, a small little ding in the planet. And so it was sort of, you know, we built stuff that we thought was interesting, um, but looking back, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. Um, uh, we sort, I started to realize, and I think we started to realize in general that, wow, you know, like if you really go for something, um, you can be directed and. In the last, uh, you know, especially blockchain time, the last five years, six years, um, we've we've realized that we can be more directed towards um, what not only is interesting but also can move the needle. And uh, for the long time, you know, I've done a lot of work in AI, and I knew that it would be it could be impactful just because of the nature of AI, sort of raising questions about the nature of the mind and what it means to be creative and all this. Uh, and AI, uh, all, sorry, and blockchain as well um, raises questions, um, uh, especially around incentives. You know, um, incentives are a, a key sort of force to organize society. And uh, so, in work on on blockchain, it's also a very big lever. And realizing that, you know, we had access to these two powerful tools. Um, what what is it that you want to build then, right? Um, and so it's knowing that it's possible that you have these tools. So uh, to me, there there's no, really no other way. Why wouldn't you do something for good if you can? Yeah, uh, to me, it feels like 
lots of efforts in AI, they're purely targeted at solving problems without really having the bigger picture in mind. And uh, with blockchain, we have a way of giving eventually the AIs that run the DAOs that hopefully govern lots of things in life, we give them a kind of ethical compass. And, and they, kind of, oh, they open their eyes and they see, you know, this is really what's going on on the planet and this is my role as a DAO. I mean, the, the DAO, DAO doesn't really feel these things. It's, it's given to it by people like you and uh, others. But this is like a huge differentiation for me that uh, we're not just uh, putting blind code on a blockchain that just run forever doing uh, the things that we're programmed to do. They are there with a purpose. Every single line of code is an ethical judgment call. Oh, yeah. So, so given you were describing how you ended up where you ended up, I mean, the next natural thing that we should actually ask you was about the Nature 2.0. So we would really be keen to know a bit more from you on you know, how you got to this Nature 2.0. And uh, if you think about it in an evolutionary perspective, uh, you know nature, uh, it is brutal. It doesn't give you a second chance. And, uh, you know, you were talking about ethics and you're talking about how you want to build these AIs that are going to be ethical. And ethics, again, asks a whole bunch of questions. And, you know, A, the question would be, how do you think we would like a nature 2.0 to evolve? Uh, you know, does it need to be brutal? Does it need to have reruns? So um, I'll be happy to describe Nature 2.0 more, but as a quick answer here, you know, Nature 1.0 by and large is benevolent. It provides us with um, the air that we're breathing, the birds that are chirping, the sun that provides most of the energy on the planet in various forms, and so on. Um, but of course, it can be brutal, it can be harsh, um, and... Uh, but it has provided this substrate for civilization. And then on top of that, we built, you know, mechanized entities and so on, going through all these different uh, eras. Um, Nature 2.0 is, uh, is going to be taking a lot of these mechanized entities, the silicon and steel, um, and it's going to be much closer to what Nature 1.0 looks like, which means parts of it will be brutal. Uh, and if you try to prevent it from being brutal, then you will probably end up with something even more oppressive. So... Uh, we try. We can bias it um, towards you know good choices. You know, make sure that the first five or the first fifty applications are positive for humanity. But um, we can't censor it, and um, we have to lock it open. Uh, so I guess if you like, I can go into the background of Nature 2.0 as well. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Please do. So yeah. Um, and then especially like what aspects of nature are we trying to replicate? On, on blockchains or with AI DAOs, because we, we could probably argue that we, we can't really replicate all of it. So like, what, what are, let's say, the first like top five or 10 um, things that you're trying to do with blockchains? Yeah, so I think overall the goal isn't to replicate nature. The goal is to acknowledge that nature itself is technology, right? Um, which is much more carbon-based organisms and these dynamical systems around them. So um, how can we have uh, leverage a more modern technology, silicon and steel, etc., uh, that are also self-sustaining, anti-fragile, etc., in a way that can be, help you know sustainability for humans on the planet um, or humanity. Um, you know, we don't need to be constrained to our meat-baked selves either. 
Um, but that's a whole other story. Um, but then on, like, you know, kind of where I arrived at it was actually largely constructive. Um, you know, J.P. Dumernick of Anexus, who's also, you know, part of this ongoing conversation, mm-hmm. he likes to talk about things that are the unimaginable but buildable. And I think that's actually kind of where it was that sort of vein of thinking that, that led to things, you know, philosophers never thought about computers um, until computers got invented, but then they became, you know, a key tool for thinking about the mind in new ways. And uh, so I think similarly here, um, all these developments of AI um, have opened up ways of thinking about AI. All the developments of a blockchain have opened up that. And I started thinking about um, what happens when you combine AI and blockchain. And, you know, it was myself, it was Simon de Rivier, it was J.P. Dumernick, it was Dimitri Dijon. And, and I was watching you guys on Twitter feeling like, oh, there are these people who think like me. And I, I, honestly, I felt really lonely. I was <laughs> in this whole blockchain thing kind of accidentally. I just got in, honestly, just through making money and mining. Yeah. And I was done with that, trying to do something really you know, useful, substantial. And and everyone was talking about shitcoins and huddle and like FUD what the fuck is all of this and then like i i I saw in this desert of shit coins (laughs) sorry about this (laughs) i i i saw what what you are doing and i think uh what's really cool is our first two guests is like you yourself and joanna and i met both of you at the same time at word ai summit in amsterdam oh yeah yeah Yeah. so it's it's really interesting how we came kind of full circle sorry no of course uh so actually there's things that heavily influenced me early in my ai career so when i was in still high school you know i was hacking video games all this um and doing other stuff with software and i'd come across random books in ai and whatnot but kevin kelly published this book called out of control it's actually 25 years old now in fact kevin is tweeting about it um, with a hashtag given. And that book um, blew my mind. It was remarkable. It was all about basically AIs, but not the AIs we were used to hearing about. It was all swarms and genetic programming, you know, evolving code, all this. And, you know, Kevin sort of talked to various people throughout the world doing uh, very interesting things, you know, the swarm intelligence stuff, Marco Dirigo, or uh, genetic programming with John Cosa and so on. And as I read this, I, I, you know, it really massively influenced me to this day. It's, it was basically 25 years ahead of its time. And, um, you know, that helped to uh, catalyze some new subfields that were emerging, subfields of AI. And so I went into studying electrical engineering, but uh, on the side, I kept hacking away and building my own AI systems and um, quickly got very heavily into doing genetic programming, you know, met John Coase and Forrest Bennett and that whole team and, and that, you know, that broader community. And I realized, you know, these are my people. These are the AI people that I want to engage with the most. And the reason genetic programming it was so fascinating is What's, you know, if you think about what's the most general sort of machine, um, mm-hmm. a very good uh, framing is Turing machine. And it's not as general, but it's very, very general. And you can do a lot with that, um, as Turing himself pointed out, of course. Um, so what if you, and then what's sort of the most general search algorithm, one that just doesn't stop, right? And that really is uh, evolution. It doesn't even have an objective function. It just goes and goes. And all it does is not die. So if you combine those. Yeah. So, so given you're kind of describing a part of the process in the nature, and don't you think there's a selection bias in a lot of this? Because if there is such a process that's happening where it doesn't evolve beyond that point, it completely dies out. That part of the tree will totally disappear. 
And one of the things that I've been worried about when we think about this in this broader sense, where we are thinking about having a bunch of AIs, a bunch of blockchain mechanisms to provide controls, and we are making an optimistic, you know, optimistic thinking, which is like, okay, what's the odds that a system goes wrong, right? So if you look at the genetic material that you actually have in a human, there are errors that happen in replication. But because of the way that it's actually being structured, we have a very high level of resilience. If you look at code, there is no such levels of resilience that current systems have, right? So how, I mean, as somebody who is very much involved in Nature 2.2, in your mind, what do you think that we, as the set of people coming from, you know, blockchain and AI should think about this problem and, you know, think of ways to provide resilience so we still have a higher chance of surviving? Yeah, so I think overall... um to me, it's not about you know maximizing the chance of surviving of current Homo sapiens. It's ensuring that we as humanity have a place in the future. And um, so, in terms of like you know, code, most code, of course, isn't um, designed in a robust fashion, but it doesn't necessarily need to be because it's an environment that are closed systems that are completely fine, right? There's tons of engineering techniques to do robust design. You know, that was my previous company that I did with Solito, um, where, you know, you can have safety margins or you can do probabilistic, etc. Um, and it, the world of AI has a lot of these things too, right? With regularization, you know, ro- dropout turned out to be regularization, for example, right? Uh, support vector machines use um, maximum margin approaches yeah. uh, and so on. And uh, every time you add sort of the ability to handle a new type of robustness, you're actually probably compromising performance in some way. But then it it, uh, um, allows for your system to work in these unforeseen circumstances. Um, This is why actually evolution is a kind of amazing algorithm, uh, for lack of a better word, because, um, you know, sometimes it stagnates. It stagnates for, you know, many, many epochs or generations. But then, um, you know, some, some small thing happens and it finds a new niche and just explodes in that niche, right? Uh, and, you know, it's really wonderful to see that, you know, as people have learned more and more about uh, um, proteins unfolding and whatnot, too, like development there, uh, the work, work like Walter Fontana and so on, um, it, uh, it's inspira- inspiring to us. So to your question of, you know, humanity and robustness there, I guess, um, it, we have to, different people will want to choose different goals here, right? Um, myself, you know, ask me when I'm 90 years old how happy I am with my meat-baked self or, or, or 100 years old on my deathbed, right? And then g- give me the choice then, you know? Do you want to be, you know, um, crippled and frail or do you want to um, have a new substrate for your mind to keep going? And uh, I don't know what the answer will be, right? I do know that I don't want to die when I don't want to die. So given uh, you kind of described something just before that, I thought I should uh, ask you an open question. I have to admit this is much less to do with the main theme of AI and using blockchain. But I thought I should actually ask the question just because you kind of describe how evolution happens. And in fact, there's a paper by Adelman, Molecular Solution to Combinatorial Problems, which kind of describes how you could actually use kind of literally the mechanism that you described but the level of actually redundancy that you actually have there is like orders of magnitude right so you get to the solution state but it's like because of the magnitude of amplification you have you literally are 
you know, pretty sure with a very high level of assurance that you get a result. And most of, and again, as you rightly pointed out, we actually have the trade-off. If you want to have that level of assurance, it's very slow. Uh, it's very energy intensive in a sense, like the amount of energy you want to do per compute is pretty high because you want to get a result. So we would be choosing a smaller set of things to do. And which, if you were to describe, going back to what you were describing, uh, nature finding small niches where things evolve. It's just like when you have a constrained situation and that's an optimization happens, like whatever solution that can happen literally comes out. So do you see like a breakthrough happening in this, you know, what do I call the convergence of the AI and the blockchain space? That being described as like a niche uh, in this, uh, you know, larger technology ecosystem and a sudden breakthrough happening and it going through. But, uh, sorry, do you mean like breakthrough technologically or in terms of scaling and actually, you know, something uh, useful that... I would think of it both ways, right? Uh-huh. Uh, the thing is like we have mostly been looking at it uh, in one dimension. So what I'm kind of thinking is like when you think of a boundary condition, you have two things that's been interacting very heavily and we've only seen it in a way that we've only seen one thing. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, it's being optimized in two dimensions. And the outcome of that could be what trend could be referring to as like an evolutionary breakthrough. Yeah, so so overall, um, it, I think it's really important to understand evolution um, in the real world isn't survival of the fittest. It's just killing of the least fit, right? And actually, people, ha- um, people have experimented with this in evolutionary computation, which is where I spent a lot of time where you just, you know, delete the worst 5 or 5% of the individuals, least spectra showed this sort of thing. And you can even go one step further and remove the objective function. And this is the work of Ken Stanley and his students. So they call it a novelty search, and all they're doing is space-filling sampling in behavioral space. So basically they said, we're trying to uh, have, you know, just interesting behavior. But um, And actually it turns out that with an algorithm like that, it just keeps going and going and going. And... It, uh, you know, Ken has written about the philosophical implementations of this in terms of like evolution. And it's not about survival of the fittest. It's basically about you have these long periods of an evolutionary plateau. And then evolution finds this whole new area where there's more resources because suddenly, for example, it can photosynthesize light or something, right? And then it can do a bunch of things and then it explodes there and the other wow. stuff doesn't disappear. Yeah. It just, it just, um, there's, uh, it finds a new ecological niche, right? And I think um, just like in the world of computing and whatnot too, you know, we still have, you know, old computers from the 80s running, you know, factories running on 80s PCs uh, and so on. Um, maybe they're not as widespread, but they're there. Um, but there's these new niches that explode all the time or think like apps too, you know. There's people um, all the time, these new apps come along and teenagers uh, adopt them very quickly. But, you know, I'm, I'm more a bit slower there. And so I don't adopt apps very quickly or anything. And I like to have my key number of apps. So there's certainly parallels. But uh, I think, you know, uh, evolution overall then, I guess to your question, um, what is it that we're unlocking now? And I think basically the combination of AI running on decentralized substrates, this is a new niche where there is a massive amount of opportunity because you can have things like unstoppable evolution. It just doesn't stop, you know, just like, you know, Ralph Merkel is talking about Bitcoin as a life form. Well, you know, that's pretty high effort to get that going. But what if you can just um, put out DAOs out there or DAOs infused with AI decision-making, then you have a whole lot of life forms very, very quickly. And this is basically getting a lot easier to happen. And, and the other thing, you know, a lot, um, the sort of this uh, assumption that everything we're building is for humans, right? Um, back and forth humans for humans. But, you know, 
the next customer is AIs for AIs, right? And we see this in the in some niches right now with ad tech, for example, where 99% of the interactions are bots to bots. But I see that this is actually the future of blockchain too, the decentralized substrates. And this is where we get into industry 4.0 and M2M and all this. But to me, like those labels are buzzwords. To me, it's actually about like, what does this actually look like? That's where we get, you know, each self-driving car that also owns itself, you know, the sovereign car um, and truck and wind, wind um, turbine and wind farm and swarms of cars and swarms of trucks and, and roads and all of these, right? Mm-hmm. And they're all talking to each other. And um, hopefully we um, pre-bias this such that um, some of the spillover effect is that it's a substrate to help us um, grow as humanity, right? So I, <laughs> I have this uh, probably difficult question comment uh, from our uh, interview with Joanna. I think I mentioned you directly uh, and, and the whole thing about uh, DAOs in a way uh, being a substrate for legal personhood of just code. So th- th- you, you're really running a risk when you deploy these DAOs, uh, that as Anish mentioned, they're quite rigid. Uh, things like Bitcoin, like who, who, who can even dream of trying to stop Bitcoin? It's so hard. Like you, ha- you have a whole army of Bitcoin maximalists and, I mean, I'm, I'm not yet, uh, into the whole cult of, you know, energy consumption of Bitcoin and that kind of stuff. M- maybe I'm biased because, uh, <laughs> I, I, still, I advise people to start mining farms, <laughs> but, but <laughs> and, and, and to be fair, like if you compare it to the whole budget of us defense industry and, you know, all the wars, maybe it's still efficient but, or just simply the energy used by the banking sector of the world. Uh, that but, uh, yeah yeah so so bitcoin is it's its whole own country and uh, maximalists are for me kind of like a soft army <laughs> uh, but like there is really this risk that before uh you know i think pre 2014 15 when blockchain was not in vogue and i was doing these like ai seminars we talked about ai running in a sandbox and it, it, the, all the discussions were around uh, the possibility of limiting at least the early generations of AI. Yeah. And that was like a b- thinking ahead, like probably like 20 or 25 years ahead. Now we're, we have these autistic, really dumb smart contracts that we call AI or like, they're not really AI, but just, yeah, they're not smart and they're not contracts. But <laughs> anyway, Yeah. So whatever they are, a smart contract ish. Um, and we're letting them, become a behemoth like bitcoin yeah. and it, it's a real phenomenon and and we we have no clue like if this thing is going to become a religion with satoshi as its own prophet how how do we mitigate the risk like the the only thing we have is core devs like w- what the fuck is core dev like politicians don't really they don't get this like yeah. and especially when they start mutating their own code you know because even if one change in 10,000 um does, isn't a horrible change um then it can improve over time right um and you know i did this with evolving circuits back in the day so uh you know when when myself and others started thinking about you know ais running on top of these decentralized substrates uh, we, we realized, you know, yeah, they could be unstoppable in the sense of unless you pull the plug in the whole substrate, which isn't going to happen. And um, and they can accumulate resources, wealth. Uh, um, so it's a huge concern. Right. Um, I, you know, we wrote about I wrote, I wrote about this pretty quickly and talked about it going back, you know, mid 2016. So three years ago now. And um, 
I don't think there are great answers, frankly. So I would love to hear a great answer. I haven't heard one, but but um, it is a double-edged sword. So there's not just the negative edge. There's a really positive edge. And, you know, what I've written about since is part of the reason that I wrote about Nature 2.0 and framed it like this is, wow, you know, we, we can use this uh, new technology of AI and blockchain together as an opportunity to opportunity mm -hmm. to really improve civilization, you know, a substrate for humanity um, towards things like, you know, instead of um, worrying about feeding your family when AI takes away all the jobs, um, let the abundance created by AI feed us mm -hmm. and give us the opportunities for self-actualization. And to me, this is the really positive thing. So it's a double-edged sword and both edges are super sharp. So we better try our hardest to bias towards the, the, the positive edge. I'm going to probably follow on from where you just pointed. We actually wanted to talk to you about this thesis of AI and abundance, and you literally described it, and you just give us the history of. He read what, our mind. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, given you read our mind, uh, I was about to ask you this question, which is like, in general, uh, for abundance to happen, there need to be uh, a bunch of physical forms, uh, a unit of energy, a bunch of logic, and that's the outcome. And until the point where the AI owns itself, uh, that is generally going to be owned by some entities. Mostly these entities are provided the economic resources by entities like the venture capitalists, right? And their incentives are misaligned with the incentives that you were describing. There's like two questions in one in that sense. A, how do you think this shift from the incentivization mechanisms where the incentives for the set of people providing the resources are aligned to improving the total accumulation of resources for themselves? Two, the one which is like the, you know, AI trying to accumulate enough wealth for everybody and the AI for, you know, I would call the common good in that sense. So I don't have a great answer. Um, I have, but I knew, yeah, I knew yeah, there's a few things. Bad. Yeah, I think um, part of it, it, it will look like it's happening very slowly at first and it will feel like it's very slow and then it will um, feel like it's happening very quickly. You know, the nature of a good exponential, right? So uh, it'll be like, no, 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 it's not happening, it's not happening. Oh my God, it just happened, right? Um, and I think uh, we will see that. Uh, and to me, what I'm asking is, I think, you know, there will be a regime change, um, but it's not necessarily for the better right now. You know, right now, sort of, you know, where we're headed is that um, the, the organizations that have both AI and data um, are reaping the, ma the, the rewards in the biggest way, and they stand to even do way better in the in coming years, right? So, um, you know, and that's actually pretty rare, right? Most Fortune 500 companies don't have a lot of AI expertise. Most AI experts are off doing their own startup, but they're uh, starving for data. And you know, who are the data haves and the uh, and the AI haves? It's pretty rare. Um, so the question is, how can we? level the playing field, um, you know, f especially for uh, AI experts and people just running the AI tools where we can uh, equalize the opportunity to access data, right? And th that to me is a, a, a linchpin to the future. If we mess that up, then everything else that we dream about afterwards um, will, uh, will not come to pass. And instead, we will end up with, you know, new overlords that aren't the AIs. It's just like, trillion dollar companies yeah. controlled by small handfuls of people. This is another topic that we discussed with Joanna, that the first super intelligent AIs are corporations like Facebook 
And it's like a hive mind around whatever the you know supreme leader, who is Zuck, Mark Zuckerberg, is going to dictate to all of them. So, in a sense, we already have super intelligence. It's just uh, running at the speed of neurons and not you know uh, silicon. Yeah, and I, I, in a sense, we do. Um, that said, um, it's not something that's fully uncontrollable yet. You know, there is one person who happens to control Facebook. Um, there is a small handful of people that happen to control Google. Um, and, you know, depending who you ask, um, these organizations mean well, but they are humans that are influenceable. Um, and, uh, you know, I, you know I, I think it's very useful to call them on, you know, their interest in the future of humanity, right? Do they want to make another billion dollars or do they want to make sure that we're not totally screwed in 20 years? But I, I think uh, we have to be fair uh, because, like, even uh, you know, CEO of Google Sundar Pichai, he's just an employee. Even Mark Zuckerberg, with his like super voting rights, he, he's now in a way hijacked by the company that he started himself. Like, his objective function is to just make Facebook bigger and bigger. And now with the global coin, God knows what what the plan is there. But I wanted to bridge our conversation to your more recent efforts with AI for Good and start with a like my own criticism in a way you, you you talk about public utility networks like you know uh water utility companies and electricity providers but in general i, I think the trend is that when their technology is not really you know improving at the scale that we're seeing with you know te- uh, technologies like ai then it's okay to have public utility companies you know like there, there's no massive exponential innovation going on in in like sewage collection or filtering or you know water filtering so unfortunately there's not an exponential in sewage generation either so that's that's a good point but but uh, my, my my issue is that like as long as we have uh R&D intense, intensive uh, developments efforts, we can't really commonize uh, the, these, you know, startups. Like I- I- even Ocean, uh, you want to become a substrate for AI commons, right? That's, that's in, I feel like that's your top level goal, well, at least one of the goals. But uh, you, you still need lots of funding to hire people to make this happen. Mm-hmm. But it, I, I just can't uh, convince myself that we, 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 can, we can have tech companies, high-tech companies that voluntarily become like benefit corps or, or like even better, like uh, a part of commons. Uh, well, we've, so I acknowledge, um, and we have good examples of that in the past where, um, if the company doesn't get, you know, too absolute in its power, um, then the the founder uh, does make a change uh, for the better, right? Um, so, and the the small, the earlier you do it, um, where you kind of lock it open, where you make it can't be evil rather than don't be evil, the earlier you do that, the better, right? So, um, and there, but there's pragmatic trade-offs uh, in the sense of. You know, you still need to to launch the thing and make it useful and iterate quickly. Um, if you decentralize everything too or quickly, then it could end up with in this morass that doesn't go anywhere, right? So, I, it, um, to me, it's uh, you know, you start in a sense centralized, 
uh, with a small number of people building something, a very small-ish product. And then over time, um, uh, you uh, work to improve the product to make sure you've had product market fit. And I mean network and ne- uh, network as the technology fitting with the, the solutions it's trying to solve. Um, and bit by bit by bit, you also decentralize over time. And ideally, you have a schedule where it's even, you know, they're linked to each other, right? And ideally, you have it where the community can call you on at any time, you know. So, um, and so you can get to a point, hopefully fairly quickly, where um, you ha- it's permissionless. So people can change things so that there can be hard forks, et cetera, right? Yeah, um, they can clone it. The, I think this is actually one of the biggest advantages of these open open source projects and now with the uh, incentives on, on blockchains that if you're an evil even open source project like I don't know Bitcoin XYZ whatever people can just fork the shitty parts away and and start the it better could work, yeah it could work either way in that sense it's like the incentivization mechanisms and forking in many ways is misaligned so if you fork, you actually get value by doing nothing. So that's a risky proposition. You could also do the right thing, which you are pointing to. I, I, the thing I wanted to ask you was like the thing that you were talking about for doing things in scale. So while you were talking uh, in, your po- uh, in your blog post, you do mention uh, AI for good at scale. Is that what you were referring to when you were talking before, like, you know, slowly and steadily build the technology, you know, have like an exponential decay of governance, which is decentralized. And as you go along this curve going up, uh, you give more, more and more control back to a decentralized framework. And then the system, whatever you call it, could actually work on its own. Or are you thinking of it like adoption-wise, yeah. where the technology gets adopted more and more, and more and more use cases get on board over there? And Or it could be the other dimension, the amount of data that you're accumulating. So this is like a question that both of us were wondering, right. what do you thought about? Absolutely. Uh, so the quick answer is, um, it's how many lives do you touch uh, with how many applications? So in terms of, like, I like to think about, like, you know, what are the KPIs for civilization and for humans and then work backwards? So if I had to pick a KPI for civilization overall, probably the easiest is uh, an opportunity for every human to self-actualize, right? And and not only an opportunity, but maybe they all have. And sometimes that means, you know, being able to write your novels, sci-fi novels. For other people, it means playing video games all the time. And that's okay. You have to let go, right? Because if you don't let go, then um, you start becoming domineering. So um, that's a top level. Now, to get there, um, sometimes, you know, you can't just say, what's the percentage of people that are self-actualizing? Because what about all the people, lower levels of Maslow's hierarchy, right? You know, people simply trying to to get by with with um, the basics, and then on top with healthcare and education and so on. So you could think of it like a weighted objective function of you know um, the sum of uh, the percentage of people at the lowest level plus two times the percentage of the people at the next level plus four times plus eight times and so on, et cetera, et cetera, or multi-objective, et cetera. Um, however, it is, um, and that's. That's a reasonable sort of objective function, but at the end of the day, the, the, the final, the, that's just sort of mechanics such that you end up with 100% of people at self-actualization. Now, um, uh, the question is, is there some approximate version of this already that people have bought into, um, people in power? And what's wonderful is the answer is yes. The, what happened is in 2015, the United Nations, which is you know about 200 nations of the world um, that have been getting together for you know more than half a century to, to talk about world issues and have managed to avoid a, a, world, a third world war, etc. 
they got together and they said, you know what, what is it that we're going to aim for for the next uh, until 2030? So for the next 15 years, and they managed to come up with um, basically 17 objective functions. Right, this is what they call the Sustainable Development Goals, and these um, objectives are things like zero poverty, zero hunger. Uh, dealing with climate change, um, helping with marine life, solving energy, etc. And when they say zero hunger, they actually have a more specific number. It's not exactly zero, but it's ma massively reduced. So they basically said, okay, um, we want to ensure that the planet is sustainable um, um, according to these goals by 2030. To me, that's awesome because it's along these lines of, you know, KPIs, your own Maslow, but it's something that um, you've actually got all these nations of the world behind. And it's been successful in the sense that um, the agencies have, have signed on to this. They actually have, as far as I know, I think 169 different specific measures of how well they're doing. And then uh, each of the agencies, um, they ask, how can we do this? And then you can summarize for good as, is it helping towards one of the SDGs? So you no longer have to do, you know, PhDs worth of navel gazing of what does for good mean? You just have to ask, does it help with an SDG or, or many SDGs? Um, and then you can say, well, you know, different people have different tools in the toolbox. AI is a pretty cool tool, pretty powerful tool. How can AI help the SDGs? So um, this question, um, people, some people started asking this, um, most notably uh, a few people from the ITU, Reiner, Scholl, and others, as well as Amir Banifatemi from AIX Prize, from some of the experiences they had in preceding years. And um, they realized this was a really great question to ask. It was, and right on the heels of the uh, SDGs coming out, they said, can AI help to catalyze solving the SDGs? And um, at first, they weren't sure, but they started to see some examples from AI Prize and so on. And they said, let's have a conference on this. So they, um, they had a, a first global summit in, um, uh, two years ago now. Um, and a few hundred people showed up and they're like, there's something here. Last year was the second. And this year, it just happened last week as the third. And um, so, you know, the second, the one last year was about 800 people. This year, more than 3,000 people showed up. So uh, at first, they were just, you know, talking, saying, hey, you know, AI might be able to help. Last year, they were starting to realize data can really make a difference. This year, um, basically, a lot more people started realizing overall AI can help, and there's starting to be some solutions, but not yet at scale. There, as far as I can tell, there is no single uh, use case of AI for good at scale. There's lots of AI for good. Um, or a fair bit. There's lots of, you know, for good at scale, and there's lots of AI at scale, right? Um, but not all three yet. So um, imagine if we had a KPI of 50 AI for good applications, each one of them deployed to 100, 100 nations, right? That to me is a very good KPI of AI for good at scale. That's what we're going for. And, and lots of it is really low hanging fruit. I love this company called One Acre Fund. Uh, they operate in Africa. I don't Sorry for the nature 1.0 noise. <laughs> <laughs> and industry 0.0. <laughs> Internal <laughs> combustion <laughs> engines intervening with uh, high-level yeah. thoughts. It's more like minus one. It's taking... A <laughs> yeah, so... And and these guys they do really simple stuff like they 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 don't even have AIs basically just process IT processes tell, educating people about you know you, it's better to uh, plant the seeds in this way and with AI uh, I, I was first thinking about like my mind is usually like the wearing the black hat oh, how can I criticize a trend here like <laughs> he's dreaming again but but then I thought like wow there's just so much data governments already are sitting on heaps and heaps of data and and it costs nothing you could probably just get it in the PR budget of Google and AWS to just give you the compute power you need to have probably in the order of hundreds of billions of dollars you know in 
uh, efficiency gains through uh, applying AI. I don't know. Do you have any concrete examples? Now I'm more optimistic. <laughs> so concrete examples of, of AI for AI good? AI for good, yeah. Uh, yeah, so um, let's see here. Uh, one example, there's actually basically any medical application that uses AI is actually AI for good in a sense, right? Because it's medical. So um, there's a, an organization, uh, a company out of uh, Munich called Connected Life um, that is um, using data to um, predict Parkinson's, right? And they have wearables that people wear that um, give some biometric signals that, that helps, right? Uh-huh. Um, just this morning, I met with one of the world's top uh, MRI experts, um, and he was telling me about how you know he, he develops technology that sits inside these massive MRI machines of, of GE and Siemens and whatnot, and... Um, basically, there's um, on-premise compute inside the machine, right? And you, there's um, and then you can do things there where you can preserve privacy, etc. So that's an easy one in a sense um, is uh, medicine because you know if you can predict cancer rather than you know stage three, say six months in, what if you can predict it six days in? Because instead of having you know a hundred sample points from a hundred people, you have a billion. And now, thanks to blockchain technology, you can do this in a way where you can preserve privacy. Before, you, you would have this massive trade-off, right, of um, um, you either get, you know, a very small data set and crappy accuracy, or a massive data set and, and uh, terrible on privacy. So, yeah, there's lots. Um. So, you, you literally have read our notes through reading yeah, ahead. He, he he's connected to some kind of... Yeah, we worry. with Notion? Yeah. Are there's a mirror behind you. There's a mirror over there. So the question we were thinking about asking was literally uh, following on from this. And we were thinking about federated learning. You literally were looking at the use cases and literally you were describing what you could do uh, for fighting cancer, essentially recognizing I mean, the effect of cancer genomics and things of that sort. And you, you know, we'd be very keen to know your take on federated learning, where you think where we are, where do you think where we need to be, or what is it that you would consider a breakthrough that will actually allow humanity to really benefit from this? Yeah. So to me, um, like... Uh, a long-term vision for this is imagine every single, um, you know, model that you build to predict cancer, to treat cancer, et cetera, and other chronic diseases to Parkinson's, et cetera, and other diseases, et cetera. Uh, all of those are built off of 1 billion or 6 billion people, right? That would be pretty amazing without compromising privacy, right? Right now, that's not happening at all. But if we had it, it would be amazing. And imagine also where um, uh, every time you gather a, um, a new data point, um, it updates everything in real time, and you can just tighten the loop. And that's just um, with the the use case of, of medical, right? So I lost my train of thought. What was the question again? The question I was asking was, is like, you know, what, what do you think the state of affairs of federated learning, according right, to you, right. was? Federated learning, right. And so. I think we should probably do another episode with uh, maybe Bruce uh, about just ocean, but... Mm. Uh, on a, like a higher level, I think this is in a way connected to what you're doing with uh, the Mobi initiative also. Yeah, yeah so um, I guess, so I'll talk about federated learning and a bit about Ocean and a bit about Mobi. So um, Ocean really, I hinted at it before, but at the heart, it's uh, a protocol, it's a network, it's a community, it's a foundation, all dedicated towards unlocking data um, for benefits to society and for businesses, right? Uh, it unlocks, and um, the reason to unlock data is to you know equalize access to data, such that we can also equalize uh, opportunities in AI, right? Which, as I've talked about, it has massive impact, right? Uh, hopefully, that's the idea. Um, 
And Ocean takes three ways to unlock the data. One of them is um, incentives uh, via network rewards. If I supply data that other people find useful and I think it's useful by staking on it, then I can get rewards. Um, so data, but also potentially compute services and so on. That's the first way, incentives. The second way is um, to um, set things up such that there's a registry of all the world's data, but then you can have lots and lots of marketplaces on top, dozens, hundreds, thousands of marketplaces selling different sorts of data, stuff for medical care, um, stuff for um, airlines, stuff for, you know, for good verticals and so on. Uh, the third way is really about bringing compute to the data, right? Um, you know, a lot of the world's most valuable data is private, right? And it should stay private. Um, and uh, you, there's basically zero chance of convincing people to release that, no matter what benefit it has, for, for good reason, right? If Except they own it. if you give them a $20 Amazon <laughs> <laughs> coupon. <laughs> yeah, but overall, no, I think it's really relevant. And this is organizations, so this is corporations, this is people, right? Uh, and, it, you know, people want to keep their data on their phone or behind a firewall, organizations and so on. It's control, it's privacy, it's regulations, right? So um, these are, this is what Ocean is designed to do, is unlock data in these three ways. Um, incentives, marketplaces, and uh, compute to data. Now, now with that, um, uh, on, on, to unlock data in a massive, massive scale, um, all, one use case uh, is autonomous driving, right? So Rand did, did a study three or four years ago now uh, where to get to the accuracy we need to be competitive with humans, we need 500 billion miles driven. And this is accounting for, um, you know, all the possible sort of um, advancements in uh, AI learning. It, it, it accounts for the fact that you have 10x or 1,000x that number of simulated uh, driving, you know, with real city simulators and so on, um, et cetera, et cetera. So just 500 billion miles of real world data driven. So, so with this, um, many audio companies, um, you know, Toyota Research came to us and they realized it would take them 20 years to get to that. So they, they said, let's build a decentralized data exchange where we can pool our data with the other automakers. And they came to us actually um, in early 2017, so two and a half years ago now. And we built a prototype for them on top of BigchainDB. And um, it was a very nice um, de demonstrator. And with that, they, reali they realized, oh, wow, um, this could really work, but we can't do this as a company that's looking out for its interests. So the, the, the Toyota person, Chris Ballinger, left Toyota and created Mobi, which is this alliance among the world's automakers around sharing data, including for autonomous driving, but some other applications too, where they're basically this consortium that uh, works across the board. So it's our pleasure to keep iterating with Mobi on these um, benefit, on these applications, including autonomous vehicles. So to me, that's a really nice use case. Now, um, what's also cool uh, to, to extend this, let's say that each driver has, has driven, you know, um, 100,000 kilometers in, in this car. And with each kilometer that passes or each mile, um, uh, they want to, ideally, you can see everything. You have, you know, LiDAR and you have full optical, you know, real-time video, all of this. But that is, kills privacy like crazy, right? So a lot of people would be like not wanting to do that. What if instead, though, um, that data doesn't leave the car? Uh, um, and instead, uh, you can train a model across a fleet of 10 million cars at once, or 100 million, right? Um, and and get rewarded by, could be some kind of equity or discount in the next generation of AVs or... Potentially, tokens. yeah. There's a, there's a bunch of ways to incentivize people to share, but they, their, their data never leaves the car, but you can still build a model across all the cars, right? And this is what federated learning is about. So federated learning is an idea. Um, well, there's been lots of things that, you know, hinted at it going back, you know, 10 years, 20 years, but it really came up with that label and so on. I believe it was 2015, 2016. 2016. Yeah. 
And so, and Google really drove this, and um, uh, pun not intended. Um, and uh, you know, they've de they've de demonstrations where they're learning across a million cell phones, right? Which is very remarkable, right? And it decentralizes the data at the core, resolves the privacy concerns at the lowest level, but, but. Um, it does not decentralize um, the other things. So you have orchestration of, you know, who controls um, the learning across the million cell phones? Who controls the learning across the million cars, right? If it's one company, like a Google, then you can have man-in-the-middle attacks, Google and see all that. And also the risk of bias. I think there's a chance that if you have multiple organizations, entities, working towards the same goal, you're going to have different types of biases, uh, which sure. is good. Yeah. Yeah. And the third thing is that final model, right? So if you have that final model and someone can go in there and reverse engineer it with unlimited queries, then you can actually yank out personally identifiable information. So we've got these that, three that levels. Assumes, yeah. That assumes like they have like an enormous amount of compute yeah. uh, at their disposal. Yeah. And the, the, the thing I was about to ask you leading on from, I mean, we are trying to lead you on while you're reading our minds to the set of questions we were very keen on understanding. So uh, what are the things that we were trying to understand uh, from, uh, you know, what you were talking about is like, how do you really find the value of data, yeah. right? <laughs> and uh, because it's like uh, the thesis that you, uh, you wrote in your blog, in multiple blogs, across multiple blogs, is like there is value for data and then how do you actually give it to people and literally you are kind of saying okay there's this uh, centralized entity that's actually right now the only entity that knows the value of the data and then uh, the next iteration of this could be a decentralized DAO kind of mechanism which recognizes this and probably do something like this i mean as a distributional value what are your thoughts on this and how do you think that's going to happen yeah, so I'm going to respond in two parts. The first part is I'm going to close the thought on the previous thing, uh, on the federated learning, and then I'm going to talk about um, how do you value data and, and so on. So on the, decent, on the federated learning, um, if you really want to value privacy, then you need to decentralize at all three layers of the stack. You need to decentralize at the lowest level of the data itself inside the car. You need to decentralize the orchestration, and you need to decentralize the model itself such that you can rate limit the queries to it. Once you do all three, then um, maybe that's not perfect, but it's the, the best ideas that we have so far on this, right? Yeah. But if you have centralized orchestration, then you have the same problems as before. So this is, um, you know, what we see is a possibility with Ocean. Uh, there's other um, really great decentralized um, uh, frameworks emerging as well that we hope will plug into Ocean, right? Open Mind and Raven, um, namely. Um, and overall, you know, this is a, a trend, of course, within machine learning towards unlocking data. Uh, the second part, uh, you know, how do you value data? Um, and I, I learned this from one of my colleagues, Erwin. Um, he, he, he says, you know, Trent, there hasn't been a great way to value data out there so far because all the data economy so far is opaque. And I've talked about the existing opaque data economy, right? By analogy, you know, we went from this, we're going from this opaque money economy to an open, transparent, um, permissionless money economy, you know, from the central banks to Bitcoin, etc. Um, the data economy is going to undergo uh, a similar transformation from uh, a closed, um, opaque data economy where you have uh, Facebook um, having their own closed data sets and then buying data from another 150 vendors and APIs or 150 plus and the Googles and so on um, without any sort of like more broad market of what this thing looks like. It's just very, very um, opaque and hidden to an open, transparent money economy, uh, sorry, data economy where there is shades of gray of permissioning, reconciling privacy, all this.
but where we see um, the value uh, as it gets extracted much better. So this is kind of the high-level vision. But because we're still um, in this old, opaque data economy, this is why we um, don't know much about data pricing. This is why, you know, um, Bloomberg terminals are basically the same business model as they were 25 years ago, right? Um, what's cool is once you start to use tools uh, like blockchain, etc., you can start to connect um, the value chain. So with decentralized orchestration, you know, this pipeline of, you know, grab some data, um, clean it, uh, train the model, um, run the model, do predictions. If you get paid X dollars for the prediction because of the business value it adds, then you can work backwards in the chain and pay royalties to the to the data provider, right? And this can all be done in, in a uh, trustworthy, immutable way because of the smart contracts as part of the orchestration, right? And this is what, what wasn't working well before. So overall, um, uh, royalties are a, a really great example of a way to connect um, the actual um, business value at the tail end um, to the front in a way where the actors don't have to be trusted fully, right? There's other ways. Um, that's just one example. I don't know, Anish, if, if you're reading the same question that says uh, Stefano's <laughs> criticism. Do you know Stefano Bernardi? He's uh, yeah, executive director of Aragon. We were having a chat about this, and he had some comments. I mean, I let him come on our podcast later and, and uh, talk about this more in depth, but I tend to agree with him that um, data has more value when it is in the hands of those companies that gathered the data for a specific purpose. So my data just to myself, both like financially and also, I don't know how to call it, like model-wise, like I, I, I couldn't do much with just my own data. In isolation, it's not worth much. So I have this, I share the like uh, criticism that, that the Stefano has that, you know, data isn't really worth that much. It, it's lots of hype. And also, I think there's a way to fix this problem, which is we should do, uh, we should unionize data. The same way that you, you only have bargaining power as laborers, workers, yeah. as unions, members of unions, we should do the same for data. So you could join different data unions and uh, you know, have a, a real say and, and uh, eventually also income. So I agree with you in that it's hard for uh, putting uh, value on data um, until it's used in a context. Um, you could base it simply on the cost of gathering, but that's still a very basic, right? Um, so I agree with you on um, that you need to actually put it in a context to value it. And that's what I was hinting at before with royalties as an example. Um, I see that there's uh, many potential solutions to this. One of them is collective bargaining. Um, like you hinted at, um, you know, Glenn Whale and Jan Lani have written at, at length about that. Um, you know, I, came, I grew up in rural Canada where there was uh, the Saskatchewan wheat pool, which is collective bargaining for farmers selling their grain, right? So very similar. And I grew up in the land of co the co-op in general, right? Local co-op for, uh, for banks and for grocery stores and so on. That's probably biased my thinking too in a big way. Um, and anyway, uh, so overall, I think that's one possible technique. How I see it in general is um, something like Ocean is going to get successful um, by solving one problem at a time really well. And at first, it'll be maybe every month or two months. And, and I then guess more time. B2B uh, in the beginning, at least. Sure. More B2B and enterprise. Mostly, uh, mostly. But I also see, you know, enterprise governments, you know, each, for example, um, you know, last week I talked with several federal governments where they're trying to get their province, provinces to share data. But then each province has its own rules and doesn't quite trust the federal government. So um, so how do you reconcile that and, you know, bring compute to the data is actually a very nice solution. 
Um, so I see that, but at the same time, I see that there's a lot of value in serendipity, uh, where if you have um, 10,000 or 10 million um, different data feeds and you just let the AI run across all of them, it's going to find things that are valuable and useful. Sometimes you might have spurious correlations, but sometimes not, right? Just like, you know, um, uh, we um, many decades after the fact, aspirin was discovered to be very helpful at um, addressing heart disease, right? Um, and it turns out that Cialis and Viagra actually turn out to help unlock other um, medical ailments too. I just learned this. Um, so uh, yeah, from another medical professional, just interesting. So I think uh, then the question is, how do you incentivize people to like just put stuff out there at, um, in some way? Because you have to pay some minimum amount. And this is really where Ocean um, is designed for this by saying, you know what? If you put data out there and you think there's value at all, where you tie up some of your own liquidity, then if other people use it at all, then you're going to get rewarded for it. And if those people um, continue to find it useful, then they're going to keep downloading it, downloading it, using it, using it, using it, and you're going to get more value over time. But if people don't use it, then you're going to adapt your your scarcity, scarce to, um, tokens to someone else. So it's in a way like a really strong financial and social signaling that you could have uh, these entities that are always first or early, and they signal by staking that if you also have this type of data, come join us. In a way, implicitly, you are creating a data union. Yeah. Without uh, calling it that. That's a good point. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. And actually, um, sort of going to a, a nice use case for sort of maybe your listeners to, to sink their teeth into something. Um, there's an organization, a company called Nextbillion, um, uh, based out of uh, Singapore. And uh, uh, one of their use cases is um, there's these mom and pop shops in rural India where their annual, you know, monthly turnover is maybe $1,000, right? And. Um, and the Unilevers of the world um, want to um, figure out, okay, how many bars of soap should we bring to um, send via distributors to this moment pop shop here and to this one here and so on, right? Um, what are the popular products? What are the trends? What's changing and so on? So, um, so NextBillion uh, built a small app that each one of these stores uh, can enter in the sales um, information as they're doing it. And then that gets shared um, once a month to Unilever. Unilever pays these people, um, sorry, NextBillion pays these people two things. They pay them a base amount, I don't know, let's say $50, I don't remember exactly. And they also pay uh, a percentage of royalties that Unilever is paying. So um, as Unilever and other companies actually um, start buying the data and paying more and more for it, then these mom and pop shops are actually sharing the upside. So you have a small baseline amount in order to um, get these people to supply the data in the first place. But then these people actually get um, the, the nonlinear upside as the data gets used more and more. I really like that model. And you know this is what um, NextBillion has done with these shops in India. They're also doing it, doing it with, with toilets, of all things, in, in Thailand. <laughs> just, just following on from what you said, uh, I'm kind of curious because India has a unique ecosystem right now. So A, it has Aadhaar. B, has a GST that's on top of it. So if you just had access to GST, it gives you the data that you just described. So in theory, if you know the entity in question, the, the reason I'm describing this is there's two sides of this equation, right? The centralized entity that has access to the data, and what you're kind of saying, you're getting slices of it from people and uh, trying to monetize it, okay? So my question essentially is like, you have two sets of dynamics that's happening. One end of the, uh, the data sync is the Indian government who actually does the taxes. For every entity that's every bar of soap that you are actually selling, you are going to collect taxes. 
and that has GST. And the government clearly knows who is buying what. And every entity that actually has to buy and sell things, now you need to have an Aadhaar. If you don't have Aadhaar, you can't even get a phone, let alone anything else. So in a different way of thinking, you could think of this existence of centralized massive organizations as being a maybe redundant. You could actually change this and just, as you were describing the previous instance and having like a DAO, you know, do that. And then, you know, you don't even need the kind of entities like the next billion and you could literally do what you were describing by just having a DAO. I think so, yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of these sort of efforts are bridges, right? Just like, you know, permission blockchains are a bridge to um, to, to uh, fully uh, permissionless, um, just like tokenized securities are a bridge. So I think a, a lot of efforts are, are a bridge. I mean, and that said, you can say that every single company is a bridge, right? In 50 years, will we even have the idea of a corporation? Maybe everything will be DAOs, right? Will we have the idea of a nation? That'd be an interesting question to think about in like 50 years from now. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, there's, and there's lots of thinking going back, like, you know, nationalism um, has many, many disbenefits. This brings me back to one of the key questions that has been in the back of my mind. I wasn't thinking that I should actually bring this up during this interview because we were hoping to have you come back uh, at least once or twice more because we we know that you are what I would describe as a store of wisdom in that sense. So we could actually ask you lots and lots of questions and, you know, get very interesting, very insightful, uh, you know, responses and answers from you. One of the questions that I find interesting, and it actually goes back to your previous example, is this optimization function, right? The optimization function that you were describing was a supply chain optimization function for Unilever. And what you're describing is if you allow... Uh, Unilever to optimize your supply chain, uh, you allow a small fraction of that uh, to be given to people. The other side of the question is, where was this resource spent? So it was actually spent in India to to, to, to transport this thing. Then there was this amount of money that was accessible to the whole of the Indian population in that sense. So now, you know, flipping it backwards, you can think of the next other part of this equation, which is like, you know, India as a democracy, right? Now we just had an election, a massive election. And uh, and as with the trend around the world, we could still see right-wing governments actually coming into power. And one of the things they've always been seeing in the last, I would say, five, six years, is they have been the beneficiaries of the technological advancements. And uh, some of the bigger data holders are partly responsible for this. You could name Facebook, for example, right? So do you think that A, for you know progress of humanity, uh, one of the key things that we as people have interest in AI and blockchain is to find frameworks of governance for data that will allow a more fairer system of governance, assuming you know we still have democracy? Or do you think we need to have new ways of governing humanity? And you said you don't need, no longer need nations. Whatever the state of humanity that is, you think we need to have new mechanisms of governance for those? Well, I think, you know, I mean, there's a classic quote, right? Democracy is the worst except for all the rest. And that's really useful to remember. I think um, a lot of the uh, initial rhetoric in blockchain land around governance was anti-government. And I think that was naive. Um, I, but, you know, a lot of that rhetoric has gone away as people learn more about um, the thoughtful processes that went into traditional governance. Um, you know, I would have loved to be a fly on the wall on the room 
when Ben Franklin was sitting down with John Adams and Thomas Jefferson writing the, the American Constitution. Like those guys were like radically thoughtful and it's just really a work of art. Um, all those founding documents of U.S. of A. Um, and so uh, and it was also like they, had, they did uh, a lot of great thi um, thinking around um, balance of power, for example. Um, how do you address the tyranny of the majority? Um, and overall, you know, you, I, you can distill it right now, how I'm currently distilling it into sort of three objectives. There's this ideal of uh, one person, one vote, the idea of a democracy. But you want to balance that with skin in the game, which is, uh, you know, where, which is more of the uh, inside companies and shareholders. Um, but at the same time, you need to resolve the tyranny of the majority, right? So how do you resolve all three, right? Well, and there's some solutions, you know, maybe one of the simpler ones is simply quadratic voting plus a, a, some simple um, judiciary, right? Um, but that uh, quadratic voting uh, assumes that you're going to have several sets of votes happening at once. You have, uh, you know, DDoS attacks on, on the, the pe some people potentially, etc. So I don't think we have a perfect answer, um, but I love that blockchains are going to be a great way to quickly explore these ideas, right? Um, so overall, though, uh, when I talk about, you know, nations, I, I, I just I think there's different organizations of humans at different levels, right? The family unit um, is going to continue to matter because of sort of biological reasons of parents and babies and how we're wired as humans. Uh, I, I think we should decentralize parents. <laughs> well, you never know. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, like going one level up, you know, teams of people forming together around different work entities. Um, I think uh, the, the city is a very good um, way, uh, like group in a sense of you have a bunch of people that are regionally located so that you can meet face to face and have that high bandwidth communication. Um, and uh, and then also um, people connecting around ideas online on, you know, whether it's Twitter. You know, I like my Twitter filter bubble, frankly, um, and otherwise. Um, but I, I think, you know, one one particular um, organizational entity that is start is starting to outlive its usefulness is something that is gathering together a group of, you know, 10 million or 200 million people that live, you know, thousands of miles away from each other and only know uh, the only relation they have to each other is they, they pay tax to the same entity but they have no other reason to be part of that same group of people right and um so i, I think that um and you know nationalistic tendencies it's at the level of nation that where we get wars and we get other things which is just hurting right people so um i i, I think there's lots of great benefits to nations but um i think there's opportunity to to rework that right or, or potentially just to over time diminish the role of that and um, double down and emphasizing the role uh, of these other sorts of tribes that I've talked about, right? This this is so fascinating. So in, in, in a way, instead of uh, breaking all the borders, uh, we are creating more boundaries by allowing people to be parts of the tribes that they choose they want to be part of. So instead of fewer nations, we're going to have an abundance, like many, many, many more nations that you could choose to be a part of. I, I'm unfortunately still Iranian. <laughs> and and with Trump and everything, it really sucks. But uh, crypto Twitter and, and, you know, all the things going on in Berlin, I kind of feel like a part of this meta-level nation that's uh, striving towards the same goal. There's lo lots of shitcoinery and, you know, the, the arguments and everything, but still... Uh, th there's this spirit of uh, openness and and uh, not wanting to go back. It, that's really the same issue. Both Iran and U.S. 
like make us great again uh, we probably don't know but it's the same thing you want we had the persian empire and everything so uh i i want to uh kind of wrap up the main conversation here just ask you like one or two fun questions before <laughs> sorry we, i think we all have backache <laughs> we're <Yeah>. getting old <laughs> yeah so uh w- one of them that we like to ask everyone is like what would you do if you had a hundred X trends or a hundred billion dollars. We're kind of implicitly valuing each trend. At <laughs> billion dollars. A unicorn trend. That's a great You could also have a combination like 35 trends and <laughs> have the rest as billions. Right. That's a great question. Um, I think overall, you know, sort of the, I, I kind of run against a personal objective function. Well, there's objective functions in many levels, right? Like, you know, um, uh, myself as a human, um, spending time with my wife and my kids and my friends and so on. Um, and, and also just time with myself too, just, you know, and enjoying my own thoughts, if you will, <laughs> which is sometimes radically crazy. Um, but then also sort of more broadly, right? Like what we've talked about, um, overall, the objective function is, you know, towards this objective function of, of humanity, um, you know, uh, every single person on the planet having the opportunity to self-actualize, equal opportunity, right? So what can I make a, a difference in there, right? And, um, and I think that that's um, a current thing, but it's, it's also assuming that technology keeps progressing. And I, you know, the way that uh, I'm thinking about the world, you know, these, these meatbag self-substrates that we have right now, um, they're going to be obsolete in 100 years or 200 years or whatever. And so how do we ensure that we transition such that humanity has a fighting chance? Um, and I do see it as a race against AIs waking up, frankly. Um, so if I had a lot of money, I would basically keep doubling down on those things. You know, I, I think uh, I've been fortunate with um, being able to assemble, you know, w- with others, teams of people to work on um, things like Ocean, which really can help move the needle. Um, so with, with more, I would be um, towards those objective functions, right? I, th- I think brain-computer interfaces are incredibly crucial. I'm really happy that, you know, a couple of guys that made a billion dollars each have doubled down and hired fantastic teams to basically go for that BCI problem. So, so here's how I see things, though. So, in order to make an exponential really happen, you need the market feedback. You know, a- a- um, Google has what a budget of twelve billion dollars for R&D every year, right? Apple probably more than that. So that's twelve billion dollars of research towards whatever, right? So, um, a- and in Apple's case, mostly the iPhone, right? So, what if you know iPhone twenty was Neuralace? Right, and so then you've got ten billion billion dollars a year budget at least towards the next generation, the next generation, the next generation. And this is kind of how I see things. So I think um, these neuroscientists, how they're assuming it, is that they're going to get the same X amount of research funding each year, or maybe two X or four X. But they're not accounting for the fact that we could have this giant sucking sound of ten billion dollars a year to make iPhone twenty one and iPhone twenty two. And you know, how does this get started? The first, very first application probably is simply. Um, SMS, silent messages, you know, Werner Vinci, Rainbow Zend. And uh, so basically uh, messaging to others um, simply by thinking about it, right? And this isn't, you know, fancy mind reading. It's more like controlling a mouse, right? That's it. And then to to actually see the signals in in return, it's just something like a Google Glass. And and, and there's a lot going on with AI and machine learning that you don't have to be 
really implanting uh, uh, electrodes inside the brain. You can you can do a lot with. Yeah. Yes and no. So, so I was about to say two things just to make sure that we are on the same page and we don't actually go up on tangents. Sorry, <laughs> we're not doctors. <laughs> you know, I, it's not just that uh, being a doctor or being uh, having expertise and uh, playing around with BCIs. It's firstly humanity has been pretty bad in understanding, uh, you know, long term impact of technology per se. And very good at understanding, especially if you consider yourself a, an expert in something. Y- your biases prevent you from understanding the impact on the long-term impact of things. If you were to ask people, and th- th- these are experiments that's been done by Philip Tetlock and the rest of people, which actually showed that if you are considered an expert, your ability to actually predict the long-term impact of technology and other things is very low, whereas your ability to predict things in the short term is pretty good. So, you know, some of the things that we were talking about is like a long-term impact, right? We really don't know. I mean, literally, early in the conversation, you were talking about the J-curve and the lower part of the J-curve. The lower part of the J-curve, you don't recognize, you know, is it, is it going up or is it just taking off? The taking off is a point that we don't know. And in this case, what we don't recognize is are we taking off, are we not? So, uh, I only partly agree. And here's why. Um, it's always good to have somebody yes. else to agree. I, you know, I, I think um, the best pictures of the future are, you know, sampling across various sci-fi writers, especially ones with a bit of a technical background, right? Such as Werner Vinge, yeah. um, computer science professor, right? Or, or uh, Charlie Strauss, who has written, uh, like, who's a software developer, or um, um, other ones. Yeah. So, so then basically... Be, you actually dragged me along for the last time. When yeah, yeah so, you, so you take the visions of what they write, and you say, okay, that's, you know say 30 years from now, 40 years from now, and then you interpolate. And let me tell you, interpolation is a hell of a lot easier than extrapolation, right? So, and then you ask, what is the next step I need to build along, along this way, right? And, you know, paraphrasing Alan Kay in that, right? You know, the easiest way to build a future is to predict it. And by the way, he didn't just say this like some yeah. Zen monk. Yeah. He said this in exasperation to all the Xerox executives while he was trying to show them what he was building. And they're like, oh, this is not the future. They were literally staring the future in their face with his prototypes. And he's like... Ah, don't you see? The easiest way to predict the future is to build it, right? And they still didn't see, and Xerox basically went broke, right? So um, this is my point. So uh, with the future pictures painted by the Werner Vinges of the world, we can ask what are the steps to get there? How do we um, attract the positive feedback loops um, of, of things like the, the, the cell phone, smartphone market in order to funnel massive resources into this? And I really hope that we can actually have BCI merge with the cell phone market so that we don't, don't lose the race. That is amazing. I, 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 I've never heard anyone uh, kind of talk about the BCI uh, topic from this perspective, that it, it, this is what happened with drones. Like, there was nothing happening, nothing happening. For probably 50 years, you had remote-controlled airplanes and helicopters, and then suddenly it happened. And that, that was, I mean, I can probably put my hand up and say I was involved in the early phase of that drone revolution in open source sense. It's like it was a DIY drones, and I was on the helicopter left. Part of the reason what happened was, A, microcontrollers happened. Arduino happened. We have access to open source. Secondly, the sensors that we actually had, uh, the quality of the sensors because of the uh, in a Moore's law in that sense, has increased exponentially and the price dropped massively. So the quality of the sensors that you know you required as accelerometers and gyros and barometers and magnetometers, uh, which like probably 
10 years ago, where worth like hundreds of thousands of dollars, we become like, like $10. And that allowed us to actually do what we wanted. And actually on this, like, um, if you think about uh, the neural sensing technology, um, it's always been assuming a very small market, very expensive. But this is why I really like what, for example, Neuralink is going for, where they're saying, we're going to go for the consumer, right? And we're going to make this thing really great. And it is going to be invasive <laughs> and it's going to be worth it, right? And to me, it's like super opinionated, but um, that can give you massive bandwidth um, back and forth um, with between computers and brains, right? And it is all about, you know, this sort of bandwidth plus plus scenario, right? You know, at first we'll talk back and forth with computers with 1% of our thinking, and then um, we'll increase the capacity and it'll be 2% and then 5% and then 10% and then 20 and then 50, then 100, then 200, then 1,000 and a million percent. And before you know it, um, the, this, the, the whole cloud side of you is you. And this, this thing on the side, this meat bag thing will be um, slowing you down. So you'll clip it like a fingernail. Yeah, it's kind of like a CPU and then you have a whole bunch of ASICs connected to you with very high bandwidth for whatever goal you have. Like if you're playing chess, you probably swap in and out the module for playing chess or brainstorming. This is just amazing. And I think you just hinted at the solution for also AI unemployment. The, everyone talks about UBI and then upskilling, reskilling, education. I never believed in you know being able to educate a truck driver to become like a programmer or pay. <laughs> or, give them the chip. Yeah, give them the chip, and then you unlock the potential. Uh, and each has a, a final. No, his final point was Nima. Please make the final point. <laughs> thank you. So thanks everyone, uh, and um, we'll probably follow up uh, either with yourself or your friends. Uh, we'd love to learn more about ocean personally myself and um, yeah please uh, if Anish anything from us uh, th thank you very much for allowing this opportunity we know that you really value your time you literally has given us like more than an hour of your very valuable time yeah, yeah. so we greatly appreciate this and and Trent's uh, Twitter uh, handle is at TrentMC0, just the digit zero. Yes, one of the best Twitter accounts. Follow. So, bye for now and see you next week. Thanks for having me. Thank, Thank you very much. Pretopia.fm <laughs>